welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Brian Dalek, one of the producers of the show, and I'll be your host this week. In today's show, we've got an interview with one of the most famous names in running, Jeff Galloway. Then, in the kick, discovering a technique that will help you happily toss your old running shoes. And an update on the top running cities in the U.S. But first, well, first we go deep on a topic that's close to all of us. That's right, how to reconcile your gut with race day. You know what I'm talking about, so let's just get right into it. Thanks for joining us. Okay, we're getting close to the fall racing season. And when it comes to racing, there are plenty of things we runners worry about. The weather, our preparation, our goals, and our guts. Oh, how we worry about our guts. And for good reason, we want to line up at the start cleared out and ready to go. But for a lot of us, it's just not that easy. If only we had the answer to that critical question, how can I make myself poop? There would be one less thing to worry about on race day. Not surprisingly, editor Kit Fox rose to the challenge of finding the solution. First, he hit up runners in the porta potty line at last year's Runners World Half and Festival in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to ask them about their personal system clearing routines. Then he spoke with Felice Schnoll Sussman. Dr. Schnoll Sussman is a board certified gastroenterologist and director of the J. Monahan Center for Gastrointestinal Health at the Weill Cornell Medical Center. And she's also a marathoner. She and Kit talked about how to minimize stress to affect that very potent mind-gut connection, strategies that really can help you go, and why coffee works such wonders. But first, to that porta potty line. Okay, so, so we are in line for the bathroom. Yeah. I'm gonna, okay, what, what is your strategy and like how much time do you spend thinking about this? Uh, my strategy before the bathroom is to get up two hours before, have a pot of coffee, and I can dwell on it a lot during the morning if the coffee hasn't done what it was supposed to. Um, I don't really have a strategy, you know, just sometimes if you, if, you, if you have to clear out your system, you do. Sometimes you don't. So you have to really watch more for me what you did night before. There's a definite strategy for me. Get up at least an hour and a half before I have to leave for the race. Enjoy the coffee, enjoy the breakfast, take care of business at home because nobody likes to go with the race facility. Basically on race day I eat light, banana and a nutrition bar, and then, um, you know, burgers and Bloody Marys after. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, don't eat anything spicy the night before, and uh, get up about three hours before the race. Um, cereal with blueberries cleans you out, and then you're ready to start. That's my rule. I try and eat early the night before dinner. The morning of, I usually just have a cup of tea with honey, and uh, these days maybe maybe a piece of fruit. It's just I think about the race, and it makes me go. <laughs> I eat my breakfast and drink my coffee and pray. <laughs> and then once you get here, the nerves set in, so then that really helps. The nerves just clear it all out. <laughs> So when my producer asked me to hit up the bathroom lines to ask people about their morning rituals, 
I really wasn't sure how that line of questioning was going to go over. But I found plenty of runners who were more than happy to share their strategies with me. And it's probably because we all share this one really big worry. And when I talked to Dr. Schnoll Sussman, she agreed. There is probably nothing worse than I can think of for a runner in the middle of a long race, a short race, a race that they've spent months preparing for, than having to go and find an unexpected pit stop in the middle of the race. So not only does that potentially affect your timing, but there are many runners that if they do suffer from bowel discomfort during a run, it can absolutely ruin the entire experience for them. So most runners would like to do anything they could possibly do to avoid having to take a stop for any significant duration of time in a bathroom during a race. Um, You've done the New York City Marathon before. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Have you had an emergency? Yes, I have experienced this over years and years of running, and I've spent a huge amount of time um, thinking about this issue because I'm just personally motivated to try to figure out a way to make my race day great. And so have you nailed down your own routine? So there's obviously nothing that's perfect, and the reason for that is the GI tract and GI symptoms are very, very complicated. You know, it seems like it should be simple. You know, it's one track. What comes in goes out, but it's it's really not that. It has to do with things like what you put in, how much you put in, how much fiber, sure. how much liquid, what time is the race, what, where is the race, how early did you have to get up? So it's so multifactorial, and that's why very often, even though you think you may have really figured it all out, there's still at times days where you didn't have a great race. And I think probably what the other thing that's really sort of important is that not everything works for every person. So there are some people that have just these iron stomachs. I mean, we've all seen them. They go to the race. They're eating on, you know, they're eating in the corrals. They're eating at every pit (laughs) stop. They're grabbing every gel and goo and water. They're taking bananas from people they don't know. And nothing happens to them. It's amazing to me. And then you have people that watch every single gram of fiber they put in their mouths and they still have problems. So I think the key thing is really understanding your body and figuring out what you specifically need. Do nerves come into play? Like if you're nervous about the race, I I get all up in my head. Like I know I need to empty my system before a big race and sometimes right, that prohibits right. me. Is that a factor? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that there is a significant mind-gut process that goes on and we can't minimize that. You know, okay. a race is a very stressful situation, especially if it's a first race that you're doing or especially if it's in a location that you're not familiar with, that you might not be familiar with the route of the race and where the bathrooms are. So when we go on our normal long run, let's say on Saturday, Sunday morning, all of us sort of know where are the pit stops. But on race days in different places, that really is not always information that's available to us and that on its own can create stress. So I definitely believe that preparation so that you actually minimize the amount of stress that you have on race day would be a huge thing to do to try to avoid mishaps. How can we minimize stress? It means 
making sure you're having the correct clothing, making sure that you have the meal that you need, making sure you have your alarm clock set to get you up on time, understanding how long it's going to take you to get to the race. And that's in addition to having the correct food and hydration for yourself on the race itself. Um, And even making preparations for what do you need to try to help yourself go to the bathroom that morning. All those Mm -hmm. different things can help minimize the stress for you. So uh, now I want to get into uh, some specific strategies because as you said, um, no matter how much you do right, and of course it's different for every person, you know, come race morning, you're you're nervous, uh, you know you need to go, but things aren't just, you know, running as smoothly as you were mm-hmm. hoping for. Right. So, um, you know, the first thing I do is I try to say to myself, my race actually potentially starts two days before my race or three days before my race. So I'm starting to get myself into this regular routine. And some of that really starts with hydration. And um, people can be seemingly somewhat dehydrated and not even know that they are. So certainly, if someone already feels thirsty, they're probably already a little bit behind the eight ball. And what I try to, you know, tell people to do is for we all that time during their training to really get a sense of what do they need to be well hydrated. And usually the key to knowing that you're well hydrated is that your urine is really, really clear. It should be maybe the slightest bit yellow um, or even just sort of clear, clear, clear. But anything darker than like the slightest bit yellow would make me already say to myself, I need to start pushing a little bit more fluids. And pushing fluids just the morning of is probably potentially already too late. Hydration plays a huge role in making sure that we're going to the bathroom. Now, um, the morning of, you've done your normal routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about coffee. I call it the the jet fuel or the magic juice that mm-hmm. gets things get things rolling. Why is that? And is it only coffee that works? Right. So certainly there are many people that wake up in the morning and they drink their first cup of coffee and they're in the bathroom. There's something about just having that drink that stimulates the gut to move forward. And some of that has to do with a stimulant that's in coffee, which is caffeine. Um, But there are probably two things that really make coffee work for people. One is the caffeine itself, which acts like a stimulant, and it stimulates the intestines to start contracting and and allows some peristalsis to happen. Um, The second is just the fact that the coffee is warm. So a warm beverage can actually help relax some of the muscles, especially like muscles in the intestines, in the small bowel, and that can actually help allow for peristalsis to happen as well. So, but this is, of course, something that you should test out way before race morning. Right. The other reason for that is one other thing that coffee has a tendency to do from a GI standpoint is caffeine can lead to reflux in people. So if you're someone that's new to drinking coffee and new to drinking caffeine, I would be a little bit careful to make sure that you're able to tolerate it as well. Um, because there are what do you mean by reflux so caffeine one of the things that caffeine can do is in the bottom of our esophagus we have a sphincter our lower esophageal sphincter and caffeine Mm -hmm. specifically can relax the sphincter so many people who drink coffee can have difficulty with reflux as a consequence so if you're someone that's not used to drinking coffee you might start to experience reflux that could be oh just boy. as bothersome okay. during a race um, as not going to the bathroom. Yep. Okay. If right. for some reason your body's just not reacting, like you don't have to go and, and race time is coming up, how right. worried should you be? 
One of the things that I do is I tell people to go and sit on the toilet. Because if you've (laughs) done everything that you do normally that stimulates a bowel movement, it is very likely that if you go and sit on the toilet, and specifically, the best thing to do is to bring the knees up to the chest. If you can get into like a squatting position where you actually put something under your feet to raise your knees up to your chest, there's so two like a like a footstool or something? Correct. Correct. Okay. So there's two things that start to happen. One is you're putting some gentle pressure onto the colon. And okay. that pressure from the knee to the chest position, it's sort of like yoga positions. And they're usually by drawing our knees up to our up into our chest, into our belly. And you usually will start by drawing the right knee up into the belly, like stimulating the right colon, and then drawing okay. the left knee up into and stimulating it down as it goes down. The second thing that that does, when you bring your legs up, you're actually increasing, you're opening up the angle in the anus to okay. allow the stool to descend into the rectum and to wow. move out. See, the other thing that I, you know, I tell people to do is to get up and start moving around. You know, the the bowel is definitely motivated um, by movement. So, you know, many races start first thing in the morning. And what are you doing before the race? You're lying in bed. And some people just doing some gentle movement, some jumping jacks, some high knees, a little bit of, uh, you know, like when you're still in your home. If you want to still try to go to the bathroom in your home, I just have people do a little bit of initial stretching just to make, to start to motivate the bowels to move, to sort of wake them up. Now, um, are, are there any other things, like what is a part of your morning routine um, to, to right. get things going? So um, in general, I usually do not eat anything within the two-hour time period before my race because I find that it, it, I can't run a race with a full stomach. So I will almost Always, mm-hmm. even if it's even if I'm the race is very very early, I will wake up very early so that I can have whatever that standard breakfast that I'm used to having. But I will have it two hours before my race. Okay. And what that does for me is just by putting food into the stomach, you get a it's called a gastrocolic reflex. So by putting food into the stomach and the stomach getting distended, it actually sends a neurological signal to the colon to start moving. Um, And that gastrocolic reflex, by eating that meal in the morning, helps to start to stimulate the intestines to move. So you want that signal to happen early. So whatever time it is, you need that to happen. So that's why I say you have to figure out the right timing for you to take that meal so that when you, you don't want that colic reflex to start happening after your run has happened. So what I try to figure out, and I spend a lot of time figuring out, is how much time I need between eating my meal and starting my race. I set my alarm. Like if if I'm in the same city, I will absolutely wake up early enough so that I can be done with my meal before two hours before my race. That was editor Kit Fox speaking with gastroenterologist Felice Schnoll-Sussman. Quick question. When you started running, did you mix it up? Do a little running, then a little walking before picking up the pace to run again? Well, that combo has an official name, the run-walk-run method, and its inventor, Jeff Galloway. Jeff is an Olympian, an author, a columnist, a coach, and a businessman. 
1972, Jeff ran the 10,000 meters at the Munich Olympics in Germany. And he probably could have run the marathon in Munich as well, but at the trials earlier that year, he paced his friend Jack Batchelor, then dropped back so Jack could take the final spot on the marathon team. Jeff ended up finishing fourth and was an alternate for the Olympic marathon. In 1973, Jeff opened Fidipides in Atlanta, thought to be the oldest specialty running shoe store, and is still in operation today. In 1974, Jeff designed his now-famous run-walk-run method as a way to help beginners start and continue running. He's since written more than 20 books on all aspects of the sport, and he's a longtime columnist for Runner's World. His starting line column has been teaching newcomers his run-walk-run method and philosophy for years. Jeff still runs today. In fact, he's been running for 58 years, and he is on the move constantly, giving clinics and seminars about his run-walk-run at races across the country. He also conducts retreats and fitness vacations. Tish Hamilton spoke to Jeff earlier this year during a rare break in his crazy schedule. All right, Jeff. So you are a longtime Runner's World contributor, and you're one of the most famous runners in the U.S., notably for popularizing the run-walk method. And in two recent Running USA surveys, you were the number one most recognized runner in the U.S., ahead of Meb and Kara Goucher. How about that? I tell you, that that totally surprised me. And uh, it it's not because... Uh, I was interested in doing that. I'm just interested in helping people. And uh, and the other uh, element there is, I've just been around forever, Tish. <laughs> and, you know, the more years you're out there interacting with people, uh, I average communicating with about 100 runners a day. And at this stage, it's mostly via email. But um, the, at the expos and... Uh, the, the events every weekend, there's another several hundred people. And it's just a wonderful world of runners wanting to learn and thanking me for helping them. And you're right, the Run, Walk, Run has been the major uh, draw for, for a, a lot of these folks. Um, so, but newer runners may know you, but they may not know your whole running history. Um, so I'd like to, to go over a little bit of that with you. Um, you were a member of the 1972 Olympic team. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, tell us about what you ran with that. I was, uh, I ran the 10K in Munich in 1972. Uh, and uh, it, it was my very first international competition experience. I was like a, uh, a deer in the headlights in some ways and like a kid in a candy store and others. It was a wonderful experience. Um, but I actually was a better marathoner and the story on that was that I unexpectedly qualified to get into the 10K trials. I'd already qualified in 72 for the marathon trials, so I knew I was going to compete there. And about two weeks before the trials, in my last opportunity, I was able to get a qualifying time to run in the 10K. Uh, I was ranked about 12th in the race, so it was very unlikely that I would qualify for the Olympics in the 10K. But hey, 
I had a chance to go to the big dance, so I was going to run. And it was a very hot day. Uh, I knew how to handle myself in the heat. Started out in last place, picked one person off after another, and wound up in second place, unexpectedly qualifying for the Olympic team. Uh, my very good friend, Jack Batchelor, uh, was in third place. Uh, we, the Florida Track Club, of which I was a member, uh, had a sweep going. Frank Shorter finished first, I finished second, and coming off the curve in third was our teammate, uh, Jack Batchelor. Unfortunately, Jack was passed by another runner just, a, oh, maybe 30 yards from the finish line, and he inadvertently bumped the other runner, and an old official there disqualified Jack from the race. Now, mm. the significance was that if if uh, he had not been disqualified, and uh, the marathon trials were one week later, and I uh, would have qualified in that Olympic trials, then I would have dropped out of the 10K so that Jack could move up and run the 10K. But that was no longer possible. He was DQ'd. So I paced my buddy Jack through the marathon trials, and he, was, he had a tendency to go out way too fast. And it was really the most glorious moment in my life to help a teammate uh, pace himself. We uh, started out in 100th place and moved up uh, just steadily and uh, wound up in the last five miles in a tie for third place. I ran with Jack to the finish line, dropped back so he could be the official qualifier. And it was just a wonderful and uh, glorious moment to uh, to do that. And speaking of hot 10Ks, uh, I know before that in 1970, you were the first winner of the inaugural Peachtree Road Race 10K in Atlanta. And yes, but but I will admit, Tish, it was, it was not then what it is now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge race today, isn't it? It is. There were 110 of us that finished that very first year in 1970, and there were not any world-class runners. I had yet to make that uh, make it up to that level. But it was uh, an amazing thing. I had just gotten out of the Navy. I was in the Navy for three years, and uh, when I heard that there was going to be a race down Peachtree Street, I delayed my vacation. I was going to be in Atlanta to run that Peachtree Road Race, and it was quite quite an event. And so in that same era, you opened uh, one of the first specialty running shoe stores in the U.S. called Fidipides. Yes. As far as I know, we were the first specialty store. There were other stores that sold running shoes, but they also sold other sports stuff, too. Uh, we specialized from the beginning in running, but uh, to our detriment financially, because there really weren't very many people running in <laughs> 1973, and we learned a lot. Um, but the greatest impact on me was because the sales were really low, and I needed to uh, at least get a, a subsistence wage and uh, pay the bills, um, I went out and started the training programs and the the clinics and the retreats and all the things that I love to do now. Uh, and as a result of the sum total of all those uh, tuitions and so forth, we kept the doors open. And what spurred you to open a running store in the first place? 
Um, I guess you might call it my uh, dissatisfaction with my first chosen career, which was to teach. Uh, a friend of mine who was really my longest best friend that I met originally in 1966, who was the third employee at Nike, Jeff Hollister. Uh, I had actually, when I was on leave in the Navy, had gone up to Eugene and helped Jeff open up uh, his uh, store, which was called Blue Ribbon Sports, in Eugene. And uh, I, in the back of my mind, uh, even when I started teaching, uh, if teaching didn't go well enough, if my friend Jeff could open a store, then I could too. So uh, that's that's what happened. That After that first year, uh, I realized I loved teaching, but I just didn't like classroom teaching. And so I, I just followed the uh, lead of my friend Jeff. So, Jeff, you and I actually share uh, a history in Atlanta, and um, I yes. bought I bought my first pair of uh, running shoes at your store in, at, in Atlanta's Ansley Mall um, in the yes. late seventies. <laughs> so, um, I have a question for you. Someone asked me this: uh, Was it unusual? So, um, of course, I was a high school girl at the time. Was it unusual for high school girls to be uh, coming to your store to buy running shoes? It was unusual, although. Uh, compared with 73, 74, and 75, uh, there was a dramatic change by 77, 78, and 79. Uh, dramatic change. And uh, I have to uh, give credit to Title IX for doing that. Right. So take us back to your own start in running. Did you start running in high school or was it before that? I was, um, my dad was in the active duty uh, in the Navy uh, until I was in the eighth grade. And I went to 13 schools my first seven years. So I was constantly bouncing around. And I never got any steady uh, physical education program or sports and didn't get any skill development in any of the sports. And I was just absolutely terrible. Whenever kids (laughs) would choose up sides, I would be the last one chosen, you know, one of those sorts of things. And um, I wasn't in shape. Uh, I gained a lot of weight, and uh, I didn't like exertive activity. Well, Dad got out of active duty service when I was 13, and he enrolled us in a school that required boys to go out for strenuous athletics after school. And uh, I fell in with a group of kids that ran because they were funny, not because I wanted to be a runner. And the rest is history. I just enjoyed the way I felt, the way the brain circuits that were turned on, which I now know are uh, that running turns these brain circuits on better than anything else for a better attitude, for more vitality, and for personal empowerment. Well, I got big doses of those in the first two weeks, and I didn't want that to go away. But, you know, quite honestly, it was the social aspect that I think was the most powerful cement to me putting these pieces of the puzzle together and running. I read a lot on the biological and evolutionary history of ancient man, and uh, the anthropologists that study that era believe that uh, walking and running uh, were what really played a major part 
in the development of the brain and also the development of humans as social beings because as as our ancient ancestors migrated to find food they had to learn how to trust one another and then how to work together which they didn't uh, six million years ago when this whole journey started of becoming humans i have to say anybody who has met you today slender jeff galloway would be very surprised to hear that you are ever heavy <laughs> well you're right i mean um i but i lived for 20 years um whenever i got injured i was just paranoid that i would gain all that weight back again you know when i had to lay off due to an injury and of course it never really happened. Even when I was in the Navy and I was at sea for the better part of 10 months on one tour, uh, I gained some weight, but I, I did not gain the amount that I had when I was a 13-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really an amazing thing um, uh, what running does for you. It gives you a whole new perception about yourself, and this is what really changed uh, most dramatically when I fell in with those other funny running kids at the age of 13. Now, did you keep running while you were in the Navy? I did, although uh, it was difficult for the first, uh, for mostly the first 18 months because I was on a ship that was uh, deployed off Vietnam. Mm. And uh, we were constantly at sea and uh, the ship I was on did not have any treadmills, it didn't have any place to run. And so whenever I would get into port, which was on the average about every three weeks, I, the only thing that I wanted to do when, when that ship tied up was to get off that ship and run. And that's when I realized I was addicted. Yeah, I believe it. So you may be most famous for the run-walk-run method, and, and can you tell us about how and when you started it? Yes. Um, I had just opened my store, Fidipides, and I was asked to give a class, to teach a class in beginning running. Uh, so I willingly agreed, hoping that there might be some customers I could get out of the class. And the, uh, when I convened the class, there were 22, and none of them had been doing any regular running, and, and actually none of them had ever done, well, none of them had done any running for at least five years, and, and none of them had done any endurance running. So our goal was to either finish a 5 or a 10K within 10 weeks, and every one of them did that, every one, all 22. But uh, the most significant to me was there were no injuries. And I made sure that they took walk breaks on every single workout because I went with them and I, I uh, held them to this. And sure enough, uh, at the end of that class, um, most every one of them continued running because they liked it. And uh, I, I really wasn't sure what was going on with the walk breaks, but I used uh, run, walk, run uh, for all of my beginning classes ever since. And I, I never had any uh, goal for beginners to run nonstop. That was never any goal. It was to find the right amount of running and walking so that the person could avoid 
huffing and puffing and puking. You know, I'm against puking. <laughs> um, but how did you come up with the idea of taking walk breaks and, and you know, not just running super slow all the way? Well, uh, there was one of those groups uh, that um, I taught, and uh, it was 1974 uh, when I taught that first class. And one of the groups uh, was terribly out of shape, uh, and they were adults who were really old at the time. They were in their 40s. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, but you know, as a twenty-something, uh, that that was uh, that was old, and I didn't know what the effects of running were long term at that time. There was no research back then to to identify that, and I didn't want to get them hurt. Um, so I made sure that there was um, a little bit of running and then a walk. And at the time, we didn't really uh, set up any set amount. I used my gut instinct with each group. Again, the whole point right from the beginning of of my teaching in running was that endurance is the key to uh, almost anything in running. And so the idea is if you have enough walk breaks into your long ones that build endurance, then you can avoid injuries, you can avoid exhaustion, and you can uh, accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. So here's an interesting thing that the running world has changed so much since the early 1970s when there were 110 people in the Peachtree Road Race and now there are 61, 65,000 people in the Peachtree Road Race. Um, how do people react to the run-walk-run method today in contrast to back then? Back then, I did not even try to get... Uh, veteran runners to use run, walk, run. And and the reason was that the average age of the runner uh, in the 1970s was 26 to 27 years old. (laughs) That was the average or median age. And um, the gender was male, like 95%. So uh, you get 20-something males uh, and try to tell them they need to take walk breaks, well, they simply wouldn't do it. Um, Where the change started occurring, uh, because we used Run, Walk, Run in all of our beginning groups. We started our Galloway training programs in 1976. And at that point, um, we used groupings for the veteran runners in preparation for halves or fulls uh, marathons. But Um, the beginners used run, walk, run. And by the end of the 70s, a lot of the beginners, former beginners, were continuing to use run, walk, run and were beating the veterans. And that's when the veterans started saying, now, how does this work? And uh, then the other big change occurred in uh, after 1985. And that's when women started coming into running in growing numbers. And the women embraced run, walk, run right from the beginning. Can you give us an example? So let's talk about the half marathon since it's the most popular distance right now. So the median time for women in a half marathon is two hours and 22 minutes. And for men, it's two hours and four minutes. So how could someone running that pace for that distance use the run, walk method? 
Well, um, I've done a lot of uh, statistical surveys over the years with various groups, and what I have found uh, is a fairly consistent time improvement when a non-stop runner finds the right run-walk-run of more than seven minutes faster with run-walk-run. So a person who's currently running a 222, for example, uh, could be expected to improve over a six-month time frame uh, down to 215 if they find the right run-walk-run and they get the right weather. For a 222, uh, there are a couple of most popular ones. Uh, one is 90 seconds run, 30 seconds walk, or the other one is 60 seconds run and 30 seconds walk. But there are a wide range of other configurations in that area. Um, for example, instead of 60-30, 40-20 is popular. Uh, I even qualified for Boston two years ago uh, running 30 seconds and walking 15, and a number of other folks have actually done that too. We're finding that the maximum amount of a walk break that bestows benefit is 30 seconds, and if you walk longer than that, you actually tend to slow down during the second half of a race, and it becomes harder and harder to restart again. Uh -huh. uh, the good news is that if you shorten the walk break to 30 seconds and also shorten the run amount, you're not as tired at the end. And uh, you, you take someone who used to run a three and one and goes to 90-30, there's been an average of around four minute time improvement in a half marathon from making that change. Well, that's pretty awesome. Tell us why, why do the uh, walk breaks work so well? Well, we've, we've analyzed this through the years and uh, it's all about having your legs strong all the way to the end. Uh, those who run non-stop, uh, almost everybody tends to slow down at the end. And uh, so another way of putting it, uh, an average slowdown for a half marathoner is around six to seven minutes during the last three to five miles of the race. And run-walk-run avoids that because if you take the walk breaks right from the get-go, you erase the fatigue buildup. And you keep erasing that fatigue buildup so that by the time you get to 10 miles, you only have about five miles of fatigue in effect on your legs, and you can really motor during those uh, last miles. So uh, what's your advice for our, our first-timers and our people coming, coming back into running after a break? The biggest mistake is to try to resume the amount of running that you were doing before, either in speed or in distance or both. Uh, you're, there's a lot of muscle memory. Uh, there's a lot of memory in every circuit that you need, nutrition, energy, whatever, uh, fluids. But you need to let the memory revive itself by having a gentle reintroduction to uh, the running experience. And so what I tell people is uh, you need to dial back your distance and start back with only 10 to 15 minutes uh, during your first workout. And in addition to that, dial way back on the run-walk-run that you were doing. Uh, for those that uh, were non-stop runners, I advise them to 
uh, choose something like 30 seconds, 30 seconds, or 20, 20, or 15, 15, when they start back. And at first it seems like baby stuff, but by the end of a 10 to 15 minute run, they know that they've had a workout. But with the um, uh, equal amounts like that, 30, 30, 20, 20, or 15, 15, uh, it's doable and uh, they're not sore and they uh, can move on. Uh, so you gradually increase the uh, amounts done with a gentle run, walk, run for the first two weeks up to about 30 minutes of some form of run, walk, run. And then at that point, it's very individual in how fast a person can proceed. So when I say 30-30, I mean run 30 seconds, walk 30 seconds. Uh, of course, 20-20 would be run 20 seconds, walk 20, and 15-15 is run 15, walk 15. Are you rarely injured? I have not had a running injury in 38 years. I have found that almost everybody that has had setbacks before, if they adjust the run-walk-run enough in the favor of walking, they can allow those injuries to heal and to stay injury-free. So that was going to be my question. What do you tell people who, what, what is your answer to that question? How do I stay injury-free? Well, the major way is to adjust the run, walk, run. And so that's, that's the first thing. Now, um, mechanics are very helpful in avoiding injuries. And by mechanics, I mean having a gentle running stride uh, with feet low to the ground, light touch of the foot, and a relatively short stride. Uh, the, the real short stride allows the ankle to do most of the work so that the major injury sites, which are the feet, the joints, uh, the uh, muscles like the calf muscle, don't really have to get overused. They, they are used, they just aren't overused because the ankle does so much of the work. And then uh, the other major component about running injury free is to be super sensitive to the weak links. Weak links are the areas that where you've had injuries before, uh, the areas that tend to get more sore and maybe keep you from exercising for a day, two days a week. At the first sign during a workout that you're getting some of this irritation, back off. Take an extra walk break. Allow that area to come back around. When you talk about adjusting the the run walk what do you mean well you um, shorten the run segment and increase the walk segment so someone that's having problems with um, say a run 60 seconds walk 30 seconds uh, would should try first 30 run 30 seconds walk 30 seconds and then if that's still not gentle enough if they've got irritation then they could actually run less than they walk, uh, drop down to 15 seconds run and 30 seconds of walk, or 10 seconds run and 30 seconds of walking. Uh, even with only five to 10 seconds of running, when done regularly like that, with a 30 second walk break, I'm finding that runners don't lose their running adaptations. And, and the name of the game in coming back from an injury uh, is to keep the injury from getting worse 
by making your run walk run easier uh, and then allowing some running to go on as in five to ten seconds because your body uh, will keep those adaptations even with that short amount. When you look back over all the people you've talked with and taught, do you have any uh, favorite stories? Well, there, there, there are too many of them, actually. Uh, I mean, every day I hear from 100 people, and out of there, there, there are always five to ten stories that are just really just amazing in different ways. Uh, this past weekend, uh, there was a, a guy that had lost... 175 pounds and he he was struggling with his health and things were going downhill but he was a Disney fanatic and uh, he couldn't fit into the chairs at Disney and uh, and he he was depressed and then he happened to see one of the races he was there during one of the run Disney races um, so he looked into it and he saw my method, my run, walk, run. So he went to see his doctor to see if he might do that because he was morbidly obese. And the doctor says, well, you really ought to consider some weight loss thing. And, and his doctor supported him doing gastric bypass, which he did. And uh, then he started run, walk, run. 170 pounds lighter and running... Uh, in the two hours and 30 minute range or so in half marathons. I mean, there's so many of these stories. It's just really amazing what people find in themselves that they did not think was there. And it's every day. Now, are you going to races um, nearly every weekend? Yes, uh, either races or uh, running schools that I conduct or, or retreats uh, just about every weekend of the year. Now, Jeff, that sounds exhausting. Well, it's not because of the upbeat nature of what I do. Uh, I, in the, the retreats, for example, we're running and then we're talking about running and then people are sharing stories and people are congratulating one another. The friendships are forged. Gosh, you just smile all weekend long. And a lot of the races are that way, too. So you're just on a, a perpetual runner's high. I am. And uh, I fully predicted uh, uh, 30 years ago when I started to get into this every weekend thing uh, that I would reach a point of, of burnout at some point. And what I find is that the human spirit is an amazing thing. And if you find the right things that activate this, that you get recharged and it, and it doesn't draw you down into a trough, it lifts you up. And running is one of those very few things in life that will recharge you if you don't overdo it. And so uh, the other side of my advice uh, is, is directed at time goal people. And whereas I have... Uh, all due respect for those who are trying for a time goal, but if you use that as your only form of reinforcement from running, then there is a burnout factor there, and you can lose the good stuff, the, the, the amazing spirit stuff that comes from running.
that was Tish Hamilton talking to Jeff Galloway, Olympian, author, coach, and inventor of the run-walk-run method. All right, and now it is time for the kick. It's the segment where we try to catch you up on all the fun running stuff that you can share on your group run, the stuff you want to talk about. And this week, I brought in our online articles editor, Allie Nolan. She's back once again, a second week in a row. Hey, Allie. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. So I want to start off this week because probably the biggest news of the week was the uh, total solar eclipse. Yeah, this was big. Yeah, it was. Um, I think a lot of people were talking about it across I, yes. the country. Um, so we thought, how can we get in on this? <laughs> um, so unfortunately, here in Pennsylvania, we didn't. We don't have. Um, we didn't get the full totality. It didn't pass through us. We didn't get that total darkness. Right. What were we at? Eighty percent. We were about eighty percent, and um, it hit us at about two forty-five on Monday. So we were looking at how can we celebrate uh, this. Uh, once in a decade type of moment, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, we were idiots and figured out it was going to be about three minutes for that kind of like 80% totality. So we were going to see how far we could run out on our back trail <laughs> during this. Um, we decided uh, a safe bet was like a 400. Like a right? 400. That gives us like three minutes to do a 400 meter. So like one lap around the track. I, I think we handled it pretty well. We took we our did. time and, and we we had to play it safe, too, because we didn't know how dark it was going to get. No, we had headlamps, uh, <laughs> reflective clothing. Yeah, our video producer, Derek Kao, had a ton of reflective gear on. Um, <laughs> we actually we put out a video of this. Um, let's play uh, uh, just a short clip of uh, some of the advice and our, our thoughts on this. We're going to all go for a run soon, and we're going to see if any of us go blind. So hopefully not. One. I've never experienced this. The last one that happened, I wasn't alive. So I'm hoping that other magical things will happen, like maybe there will be a unicorn out. I'm hoping to get sucked up into the black hole of the moon sun. <laughs> so what what was that, Ellie? What about the black like black hole sun, like the song from the 90s? It was not the black hole sun. <laughs> <laughs> Though that would have made for that a really good been, running song playlist. Like, a, re- a really good running song playlist yeah. and a very creepy video. Very creepy video. Yeah, if, if you remember that. Um, oh, yeah. So you were not sucked up no. into the sun after the run. I'm sad. Um, I mean, Warren thought it was going to rain blood. And I thought that <laughs> Warren we, Green, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. Yes, you might know him. And um, <laughs> I thought like maybe there was a possibility that we would get sucked up into the black sun hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but no. No. Maybe it's because we weren't we weren't in the totality. So that's good. Uh, one tip, um you tried on the cool special glasses, right? To I did. actually look up directly at the sun. Yes. And uh, I did as well. I didn't realize they were so dark no. like when you for everything else around it but the sun. So a tip for when you're doing this in 2024, the next time we have one, don't try to run with those glasses on. Right. You, Do not you will, try to move with you those will, glasses on. You will run into a car or a tree <laughs> um, or just trip over your own feet. So it's it's not good to try those sunglasses on a run. Just stand still and enjoy the um, awesomeness that is a total solar eclipse. Which is basically just like a ring of orange. Yeah. It was and it was awesome. It was really cool to think like everyone in the country was kind of taking a break yes. and like looking up at the sky and just like enjoying the wonder of that the is world. True. Yeah. Oh, 
Hmm. Okay. So, <laughs> so let's move on to a couple running stories. Um, actually, the first time you were on the kick was last year when we talked about the best running cities. It was featured in the magazine. We actually we put up an update on the website on kind of top running cities for 2017. Um, tell us how we went about just getting some new data this year. Yeah. So this year, instead of doing all of our own original research, uh, we were lucky enough to partner with Strava, um, and they told us some really interesting uh, statistics from, that they've gathered from their user base. Yeah, and they have like millions of users. So it was great to kind of partner with them and get all that data, like you said. Um, so we looked at stuff like cities with the most total runners and, you know, in the story, and we'll put a link up on our episode page at runnersworld.com slash audio. Um, you know, obviously cities like New York City, LA mm-hmm. are one and two, mm-hmm. just a ton of runners in there. But um, the city that was last for most total runners was Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> we feel bad for Buffalo in that, but we'll get back to them because they have a good comeback story later in this list. Buffalo um, is really the city of comebacks in general. <laughs> I lived there. I feel for them, and I ran there. It's a great running city. Yeah, I, I, I almost did their uh, marathon this past spring. I really want to do it. Yeah, you yeah, should okay. totally do it. Okay, All right, we'll so get back Buff- to that. we'll come back to you, Buffalo. But um, cities with. And and you come up here with uh, cities with the newest runners. You and I we talked about this a lot. Yeah. Um. There's a really big like dividing line in the country between newest runners, and when we say newest runners, we newest mean newest to Strava. Newest to Strava, not necessarily like new beginner runners. Maybe you are, but there's no way for them to really track that. But when it comes to newest runners to Strava, a lot of the newest runners are on the East Coast. <laughs> so you have. Um, cities like Pittsburgh is number seven. Miami Boston, is number one. Miami, number one. Tampa, three. Houston, number two. So they're kind of on that right side of the dividing line of the country. But when you look at the back end of the uh, list, we, so we ranked these 50 cities for each category. And so you have on the left side of the country, it's all West Coast. Right. Um, it's Silicon Valley. Yeah. So, yeah, we had the theory that. Strava started in San Francisco and it probably spread a little bit easier out on the West Coast for all those people who've I used it before. So, so is yeah. that what we think? I really do. I think not that just that they're just endurance mecca out there. So I mean, they are a, that a little too, bit, yeah. But they're obsessed with running and they're obsessed with data and they're obsessed with tech. I think I'm just making broad generalizations <laughs> right now, <laughs> but I just think that they're probably a little more savvy than us East Coast folks who uh, really just like to use our Timex watch. Right. 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 And and like you even I think you just recently you, I think you followed me on Strava recently. I just started using Strava. And you love it, right? Um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little hard to hide those 10-minute miles. <laughs> and Runner's World, you know, we have our own group on Strava, so you can follow Runner's World on Strava, and we have events and things like that that we do on that page. But um, we talked about Buffalo. Buffalo they're in this newest list. They're number 13. So they really jumped from that 50th spot in total runners to being a crowd of like very interested in this new technology and keeping with the Buffalo theme. Again, yes. we love Buffalo. We love when Buffalo. When it comes uh, the last one on this first list of uh, top running cities that we're updating this year, uh, Buffalo, again, in the top 10 for cities with the youngest runners. Right. And that's fascinating to me, too, because for a long time, I think Buffalo was thought of as an aging city. And now we have like these younger um, runners that are making a comeback in, you know, the old Rust Belt. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Buffalo, number three. Um, Boston was actually number one on cities with 
the youngest runners. We think that, you know, a lot of colleges, college a lot of college runners and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of other cities on the East Coast, like Pittsburgh, Baltimore, in that top 10. So definitely check out this list. Um, we'll be trying to do more data analyzation over the next few months with Strava to kind of... Um, you know, have more insights on really where the top running cities are in the country. I think we're going to be able to tell you where the fastest runners are running. Yeah. So that that, I'm cool. interested to see that. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So stick with us on that. And so finally, Allie, um, I really wanted to bring you in on this one as well because um, it really, I have a story and we'll get to it, but um, we had this story by writer Kristen Gill. And um, she was basically, she had an issue with um, decluttering her shoes. Can you give us um, background? I think a lot of runners have this issue with a closet full of shoes that you just can't get rid of. Right. So, I mean, who doesn't have this problem as a runner? Um, Kristen, interestingly enough, um, had a custom shoe box made that's like a giant Nike. It is fantastic. It is amazing. And so I was kind of like, why did you want to get rid of your (laughs) shoes? But she did. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she used the Marie Kondo method um, that we're all kind of familiar with now where you touch a pair of something, Mm -hmm. uh, something that you belongs to, and you see if it sparks joy or not. And if it doesn't spark joy, you toss it. Yeah. So um, what our writer found is that maybe the shoes were sparking joy, but the joy was actually the memory. And as long as she could hold on to the memory, she could toss the shoe, which is kind of a nice thing. I don't know, though. (laughs) (laughs) You, you you, You don't think it would work for you? I would be like... Uh, this is sparking joy, and therefore I must keep it forever. Oh, yeah. But yeah. How about you, though? Okay, so, yeah, I do have one story. So I, I've easily gotten rid of, like, marathon shoes or, like, shoes that I – I don't even know what shoes I really have, like, PR'd in, and I've gotten rid of – I have certain shoes that I just really like for certain workouts, so I'll keep for a long time until they're sense. dead. But when yeah. they're dead, they're dead. But one pair of shoes that are dead – I bought them the night I asked my wife how she worked at a running specialty store, and I couldn't get rid of these shoes, even though, like, to be honest, they're not the best running <laughs> shoes I've ever been in, um, you know, but I, I just, I, there's no way I can get well, rid no, of them. That's like the most joyful moment of all time. Of yeah. course you can't get rid of them. They right. should be framed. Yeah, they, like, gave me the courage to, like, ask her out that night. Oh, no, I, I'm I, dying. That's how I have to look at it. <laughs> so those will always spark joy to me, and I, I, I can't get rid of them. That's adorable. So that, that gets me that gets me brownie points at I home, right? I think so, okay. more. <laughs> no, excellent. it's a very true story. Um, and, uh, yeah, this story really made me think about it. But, I mean, yeah, we all have way too many shoes um, so that we're dealing shoes. with. Um, and half of them and, I don't and wear. Run, and running shirts and just race shirts. Like, oh my do gosh. your race shirts really spark that much joy? My race shorts, shirts do not I mean, anymore. certain ones, but... Most but, of mine are stained pretty badly now. <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. And once they're stained, can you, like, where can you really wear them <laughs> except for on them. a run, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, Allie, thank you so much for doing the uh, the moon eclipse run with us, the sun. Um, we're glad you weren't sucked up into the eternal black hole of the moon sun. Yes. Um, uh, but maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> in 2024 we'll be back and we'll update everybody awesome well thank you so much for having me yeah thank you that's nearly it for this week's show um, but we do have an important note coming up for our listeners I'm Brian Dalek and I produce this week's show with Sylvia Ryerson Alex Ward and Christine Fennessy 
Be sure to join us next week for an unusual way to run a half marathon. Thanks for joining us.